Well, why don't you imagine that your worst nightmare comes true? Do you ever have that, like, reoccurring thought? Like, what if the worst case scenario happened to me? What would that be for you? Have you had, like, weird dreams that you, like, have over and over again? You think, oh, man, I'm glad that doesn't happen. Like, if you uh, show up to school and you're late and all your, your assignments are out of order, when you get older, maybe it'll be you show up to your job and it's like you don't have anything and you're there for an interview and you don't have anything and you're, like, panicked. That's like the worst case scenario, right? Has anyone ever had a worst case scenario thing happen to them? Has that happened before where like you've been thinking, I hope this never happens, I hope this never happens, and then oh, boom, all of a sudden, there it is. Well, there's a guy that I read about that had a worst case scenario thing happen to him. Like this is worse than you could imagine. This guy was a warden, so that means he ran a prison. This guy was in charge of a lot of different people that were inmates, and he was supposed to keep charge of them. And if you could imagine, what's like the worst case scenario the, the thing that keeps you up at night, the freakiest, worst-case scenario for a guy who runs a prison, it's that all the locks come undone and people walk out of the prison. Well, there was one night where this actually happened. It, this guy woke up after midnight, and all of the locks on all the doors, the technology broke. And what happened was all the doors were open, and all the prisoners were actually able to walk out. And in this guy's culture, it was such an honor culture that, like, if, soldier, if the soldiers didn't protect the, the people that they were guarding, they would actually, the most honorable thing to, for them to do would be to kill themselves if they weren't good enough at keeping these people in. And it was a scary situation for this guy. It was literally a worst-case scenario. And uh, if you know your Bible, you actually might know what I'm talking about. This actually happened in the Bible. There's a guy in Acts 16. He was a jailer. He's called the Philippian jailer. And it says at midnight there was an earthquake, and all of the things that held the prisoners that were in his care broke. They could all walk out. But as they were about to walk out, the jailer rushed in, and he saw two people. There were two people in this prison that had something that could do something for this jailer. Paul and Silas were in prison in Acts 16. And what happened was when they saw this guy, this guy ran up to them, the two of them, and asked a question. And that's the question that we're going to go over this morning. The most important question you could ever ask. This jailer went up to Paul and Silas and he asked this one simple question. He said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's weird because they're the prisoners, right? He's the one who is the warden, he's keeping them in, but he asks them, the prisoners, what should I do to be saved? I don't think he was talking about saving his life. He wasn't talking about saving his job. He was talking about something very specific. See, Paul and Silas traveled all over the world, and what they were preaching was, you can be saved from death. You can be saved from your sins. You can be saved before God, but there's a process for that. There's something that has to happen. It doesn't happen automatically. And this guy as he was facing life and death and even the possibility of having to kill himself, he asked the question, what should I do to be saved? The problem is a lot of people come in and out of church and never ask themselves that question. What do I need to do to be saved? Not how does God save, not what happens out there. I mean, how does God save some people? But what needs to happen for me, for my soul to be saved for eternity? My fear is Many of us come in and out of these doors. Maybe you've grown up in church. Maybe you haven't grown up in church. Maybe you were invited by a friend. And we come in and out of church, and we never stop and ask the question, what about me? What do I need to do to be saved? Am I sure that I'm saved? Am I sure that I'm right with God? And some of you have asked that question, and you've actually turned the other way and said, I don't want to be saved. I want to tell you this morning that the Bible is very clear about how a person can go from spiritual death to spiritual life. It's very clear. We're going to finish a section that we started last week. I want you to grab a Bible and look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Three simple, short verses. 
Many of you have memorized them. If you went to Revival Summer Camp this year, you did memorize them. But these three verses tell us basically all we need to know about how to be saved. Very key for us to understand this. And I don't want you walking out of this room without knowing clearly how to be saved. And then it's on your plate, whether or not you will be saved. I understand that that is the next step in all this, but I don't want anyone to be confused about it. That jailer asked the question, what should I do to be saved? And it would be tragic if you missed out on salvation because you never asked that question. So let's ask that question together this morning. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. Hopefully you have it in your Bibles. Make sure you pull it out. If you don't have a Bible, I'll stall for you right now. The Bibles are in the back. It's a famous verse. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. It says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith. So he's talking to people that have been saved, that they're already saved. They're not like the Philippian jailer who was going to get saved. These are people that are already saved. But he tells them, hey, it was by grace you've been saved. Right? Over my shoulder, you see the big word, five letters, grace. That's been the title of our series. But we haven't really stopped a lot to ask a question, what does that word mean? We talked about it a little bit last week, but the word grace means this, an undeserved gift. It's an undeserved gift. So he says, it wasn't because you did something to be saved. It's not because you earned something to be saved. If you're saved here this morning, it's because God, in his grace, as a gift, saved you. That's how it works. Nobody earned their way. He goes on. He says, you're saved through faith. Now, this passage actually doesn't tell us what our faith goes in. Now, the rest of the Bible makes this very clear, and even the rest of Ephesians 2 makes this clear. Our faith is in Christ. Now, some of you hear the word faith, and you think that what faith means is believing in something that you know doesn't exist. You ever heard that definition of faith? Believing in something you, you know doesn't exist. You're just hoping that maybe um, something good will happen. Or I just have, you know, I have faith. People talk about having faith. Well, faith in the Bible is not that kind of faith. Faith in the Bible, the word really means a reliant trust. Just like all of you right now trust the chair that you're sitting in enough to just put your butt in the seat and you didn't even think twice about it. Did any of you think, man, I ho- oh man, this chair, will it hold me? You didn't think that. You just kind of sat in it, and you just assumed that it would hold you. What you did is, all of you right now are placing your faith in the chair that you're sitting in. It's holding your weight. You trust it. That's what we're talking about. We're saved by God's gift, by God's grace, through, and how is a person saved? Well, through faith. That's how we access God's grace, through you trusting him. It goes on. By grace, you're saved through faith. This is a famous verse. And This is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. He's going over the top to explain, hey, this is a gift. And even there's some debate about this passage, like what is he saying is a gift? Is it grace? Is it salvation? Or is it even talking about the faith that we have to believe? I think you could pretty much say all of the above. All of that is a gift of God. It's not by our works. Look at what verse 9 says. It's not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Here's the point. Um, If you're a Christian today, It is not because you did more than the next person. It's not because you are a better person than the person sitting next to you. If you're a real Christian, that's not why it is. Um, Some of us think that if all we did was just like try just a tiny bit harder and like just, just try and just be a little bit better, just a little bit better, that that would make you a Christian. Here to tell you today, that's not how it works. Most people think that's how you become a Christian, by trying to be a little bit better of a person, trying to fix a couple things, stop a couple little things, start a couple good things, maybe go to church, maybe serve, maybe, you know, do all that, maybe raise a family in the church. That's not how you become a Christian. And if you're deceived about that, I want this morning to be mind-blowing to you to say that's not how it works. 
I've been deceived this whole time. I thought I was earning my way to God, but you can't do that. This passage is so clear. Not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. No one is going to stand up on the last day, stand before Jesus and say, I made it here because I served you. I made it here because I went to church. I made it here because I did everything you wanted me to do, God. Nobody will say that. Anybody who claims that will not go to heaven. And the problem is some of you are building up this resume. You think, okay, one day I can tell God all the good things I did for him. That's not how you get saved. And if you think that's how you get saved, I want this morning to be a radical shift in your thinking. That's not going to get you there. He goes on. He says, so that no one may boast. That you can't stand up and say, I did it. I can't, up, can't stand up and say, I'm a Christian because look what I did. It doesn't work that way. But verse 10, if you thought good works had nothing to do with salvation, you'd be wrong because it says in verse 10, for we are his workmanship. Workmanship is a word not used very often in the New Testament. It's talking about um, a, a mastercrafted creation, like something very special. It's like something that took a lot of time to design and create, and now it's going to be used for a very special purpose. Right? Sometimes people look at that word and translate it uh, masterpiece. Right? Why? Well, because what he's saying is, if you're a Christian, God made you special. Right? Now, that sounds like a weird thing to say. God made you special for him to do special things for him. Right? You are uniquely designed. You're different than your siblings. You're different than your parents. You're different than me. You're different than your friends. You're des- designed uniquely to bring God glory through doing good works for him, but in a unique way. Look what it says next. It says, we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. That word for, little word, is telling you what the purpose of him recreating you is. The purpose is he wants you to do things for him. That's why he saves us. goes on. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Most people read this and think, okay, which God prepared us beforehand, right? Like he's saying, you know, God designed us and mastercrafted us so that we would do amazing things. Although I think that's implied and that we're his workmanship, that's not what the text says. The text literally says this, that God has good works that he has pre-planned for you that you're going to have to carry out today. That he planned in eternity past that now your job is you're going to walk in those good works. Like you're walking on the path and then you see new things pop up and you're supposed to do them. He's going to put things in your path and put things in your way to do. And those aren't random things. It's not fate. It's not chance. It's God's sovereign plan. That's what he's saying here. None of this is an accident. Salvation is not an accident. It's not something we can earn. And it ultimately is not something that is unimportant in the sense that we can just do whatever we want now. This passage is so clear about how to be saved in verses 8 and 9 and then what happens to you when you're saved in verse 10. Verse 10 is not saying, hey, if you do good things, you'll get saved. Because look at what verse 8 and 9 says. It doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. And some of us are so convinced that all we have to do is just change a couple little things about my life. And then God will look at me and say, you're a Christian now. That's not how it works. It's not how it works. It would be tragic for you to hear sermons and go to church and even like try really hard. Because a lot of people try really hard to be Christians, right? They, they, they avoid things. They work really hard. They try to be good. But if all that's for nothing in the end, that's a really tragic situation. I don't want that to be your situation. This morning, I want you to realize that you can never earn salvation on your own. You can't do it. The passage is super clear about that. Okay? I also want you to realize that the way for you to receive God's grace or gift is not through doing but through trusting. That's what faith means. And then I want you to understand that our job as Christians, right, as Christians, not people who are pre-Christians, no, but as Christians, right, if you're saved, 
if you have been shown God's grace. Now, your whole purpose in life, my whole purpose in life is not to do whatever I want to do. Your purpose is not to do whatever you want to do. Your whole purpose in life is to accomplish whatever God has pre-planned for you to do. That's the point. This text is very clear. Maybe you've heard it before, but I want to uh, read it again today with some fresh eyes, and I want you to take away some new things. So point number one, I'd love for you to write this down from verse 8 in particular. I want you to admit that your best efforts aren't good enough for God. Admit that your best efforts are not good enough for God. In some ways, this is a scary thing. In other ways, this is a freeing thing. When you stop and realize that you can't earn your way to God, some of you would just, you would tell me that every day of the week. I would have told you that before as a Christian. Oh, you can't earn your way to God. You can't earn your way to God. But the reality is for me, and I suspect it is in a group this size, for many of you, if you don't stop and think about it, you might start looking at your life and say, wait a minute, this whole time, I've been trying to like live the Christian life and do the Christian thing and hope that I, I can fake it till I make it. And then everyone around me and my parents think I'm a Christian. And then one day God will say, you're a Christian. Right? <laughs> you can't fake God out. It's not how it works. You can't become a Christian by doing a bunch of things and then saying, all right, I've reached a status. It's not like, you know, leveling up, you know, an Xbox. Like, it's not like about reaching a different achievement level and saying, okay, now you're at Christian status. That's not how it works. How do you become a Christian? Well, the last text said that we studied last week is you become a Christian instantaneously when God declares you to be a Christian, when he raises you from spiritual death, when he opens your blind eyes, so to speak. That's when you become a Christian. It's not when you achieve some status. Here's some passages for you to write down. First of all, Romans 3.20. Romans 3 is super clear about this, but here's what it says. For by works of the law, by keeping God's rules, by doing what's expected, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Here's what that means. Um, the Ten Commandments, for example, right? Those are just ten basic things to start, right? God said, hey, you got to worship him as the only God. No other gods before him. No idols, right? How do, how do you do with that? You pretty good at that? You only worship God. You never put yourself before God and your desires before God. You never put your academics before God. You never put your sports before God. You never put your entertainment before God. You would never do that, right? Oh, wait a minute. All of us have failed with that. The next thing he talks about is don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't use God's name in any other way than in reverence and worship. Never even like say God's name in a prayer when you don't mean it. Never joke about God and use his name in some inappropriate, never do that. Okay, how, have we lived up to that? No. Every one of us falls short. Even if you don't use God's name in vain in, in, a, curse, in a cursing sense, you've prayed to God and used his name probably and not really meant it and kind of been zoning out and you've you know, sung along to worship lyrics and said his name and talked about him and you were kind of thinking about what's for lunch, right? Every last person in this room has taken God's name in vain. Then he says, hey, make sure that you honor your father and mother, you know, like all the time, right? How, how do we do with that? Well, we fall short. Then it says, hey, don't, don't covet what other people have. Don't look at what someone else has and be envious in your heart and say, I want that. They shouldn't have that, right? how, how do we do, right? We all fall short, right? The more law, the more um, rules God gives, the more you see, wow, I'm falling even more short than I thought. That's why Romans 7 says that you've got people who try to earn God's favor. And Paul actually talks about himself at the end of Romans 7. And he says, there was a time in my life when I was trying to do good. And I was like trying to obey the law. But then like I couldn't. I, I couldn't do it. And I was, there was this back and forth. And the more rules that you bring in, it sometimes even brings forth the idea of sin. 
He says, you know, some people, when they look at the rule that says do not covet, they think, oh, I don't want to covet. Yeah, I shouldn't covet. You know, I shouldn't covet what other people have. You know, I shouldn't covet um, their boyfriend or girlfriend. I shouldn't covet that they're popular. I shouldn't covet that everyone likes them, right? And it's almost like the rule of do not covet starts to lead them because of their sin into like coveting more because they start thinking more about coveting and then they start coveting more, right? And Paul says it's not that God's rules are bad, it's that we're sinful, right? It should just show us again how sinful we are. Another verse for you to write down, Romans 11, verse 6. Romans eleven six, Paul makes it clear again in that passage. He says, but if it's by grace that you're saved, it's no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace, which I think is very important for us to understand what that word means. Right? He's saying, look, if you're a Christian, if you're right with God because of something you did, because of works that you did, because you attended some camp, because you got baptized, because you did something, if that's why you think you're saved, well, then grace is no longer grace. Because everyone who's saved, they're saved by God's gift. And if you think you earned it somehow, either you're mistaken or you're actually not saved. It's one of the two. But it can't be that you earned your way because grace is no longer grace. For example, the standard that God sets is very high. And, And the thing that we tend to do and that I've done before and maybe you've done before and some of you are probably doing right now is you think, That if you do better than the people in your small group or your siblings or the people at your school, and you're like better than them, marginally, obeying God's rules, that God will look at you and say, well, at least you're like, you know, the top 10% of people who try to honor God. Um, That's a lot like this. Do you know what the world record pole vaulting, the world record is for pole vaulting? You know what pole vaulting is? That big, long pole that you run, and the guy's like very impressive, and they've got like, you know, quadzilla action going on right and then they they're running super hard and they jump over and they put the stake in the ground and they jump up right do you know what the world record was it was set this summer a guy named armand duplantis from sweden he set this record in oregon at the at the at the national games 20 feet six inches okay 20 feet six inches that's pretty high to jump over by using a um a flimsy like fishing pole right it's not a fishing pole, but you know what I mean? Like using that pole, thing. 20 feet, right? How high is 20 feet? I mean, these ceilings are, yeah, about 20 feet. Like, I mean, I, seriously, imagine, you know, running down the center aisle, taking a pole and jumping over, like, the light. The lights are probably only, like, 14 feet or 15 feet. Um, I don't know. But, yeah, probably as high as ceilings, like, 20 feet, right? Adults, right? People who, yeah, can estimate, yeah, right, yeah. I don't know. It's about 20 feet. Imagine, like, running down this, jumping over. That's amazing, right? And here's the thing. I think if we all said we're going to be good pole vaulters, we could practice, and there would be some studs here. I think some of you would probably get 12 feet. Others of you might even get 15 feet, right? There are some people, some of you, right, let's just be honest, right, pole vaulting is not, not, it's not your skill. Um, six or seven feet, maybe. Maybe, maybe, like, let's just be honest, there'd be a lot of failed attempts, a lot of, like, missing. You know how they had to put that pole, like, in that little tiny slot? There'd be a lot of missing that. There'd be a lot of people running as fast as they can and hitting the, the pillows or whatever they put down there. There'd be a lot of failed attempts. But I bet if you worked for a long time, you could pretty much master it to your ability level, right? You'd hit your highest potential. And some of you would do even better. And there'd be people like um, Armand Duplantis from Sweden who would be even better than you. And he could look at you and say, a little peasant, right? Uh, he'd probably say it in some Swedish accent. I don't know what even Swedish accent is. Very blonde, very like, you know, tall, 
chiseled face, oh, peasant, right? Um, I can do it higher than you. But here's the problem. Um, if your assignment was not to jump over a 20-foot thing, if our assignment as humanity was jump over Saddleback Mountain, okay, um, we could spend a really long time trying to get really good at pole vaulting, but here's the problem. Um, some of us would stop and say, wait a minute, this is never going to work. There's no way I could ever jump over Saddleback Mountain. And some of us would say, that's unfair that that's what we need to do. We shouldn't have to do that. But if that was the standard set for us, pole vaulting, we could never get there. And here's my point. You might be marginally better than someone else. You can look at, I guarantee every last person can look at other people in their life and say, you're better than them. Okay, fine. But that doesn't really matter to this context because God's standard is so much higher. If you spent the rest of your life trying to be a good person, if you turn into Mother Teresa and you're giving your life for orphans and widows and for the rest of your life, here's the problem. You still sinned. You still fell short. It's, you're done. You're, you're already in the condemned pile with the rest of us. We need someone to carry us over Saddleback Mountain, and that's the good news of the gospel, that we fall so short, but Jesus can jump over Saddleback Mountain, so to speak. He can take us all there. But the problem is, you need to give up saying, wow, look at my personal best. Look at my record. If really, our job was to get over Saddleback Mountain, if you looked at, if we had, you know, little squabbles here, well, I got 15 feet. Well, I got 14 feet. Well, I got 12 feet. Those arguments turn into pretty stupid arguments when the reality is what we need to do is get over Saddleback Mountain, okay? I want to turn to a passage where Paul actually said about himself that I realized I had to give up. There was a point in which I realized I could not earn God's favor. I want everyone to turn to Philippians chapter 3, real quick. Philippians chapter 3. Turn to the right in your Bibles. It's only one book over. Super, super quick here. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Paul was a guy who was better than you. He was better than me. The reason I say that was he grew up in such a strict religious system that what they say is back in the day that you started studying the law at about five years old, and by the time you turned 13, you were supposed to have memorized the first five books of the Bible entirely, right? Before you made it to high school, that's what you were able to do. He was so strict that he surpassed everyone in his small group. He was like the most godly, that for this, his entire life, everyone was looking at him and saying, Saul, you're such a godly guy. Saul, you should even think about being a Pharisee. Saul, you should think about that. And he said, you know what? I should think about that. And he did, and he was the strictest. He was the most zealous. He was the most all of those things. But even he realized, I can't jump over Saddleback Mountain. I can't reach God's standard. Look at Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. Look what it says. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. That's the key phrase here. I'm putting no confidence in the flesh. I'm not saying I'm right with God because of what I did. That's what the flesh means, some, something that you've done. Look at verse 4. It says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. He's not saying, hey, we don't have confidence in the flesh because I spent my whole life being immoral, doing wrong things, stealing from people. I didn't. In fact, if anyone was to have confidence in the flesh, he says, I do. I do more than you do. That's what Paul's saying to us as we read it. Look at verse 4 again. Because I have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And here's what he's going to do. He's going to list all the good things he ever did. Verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Right? So he says, my family, they were legit. They were solid. I can trace my lineage back to Benjamin. All the way back. I, I come from a better family than you do. 
even racially. He's saying, hey, I come from the right people. He says, if I wanted to put confidence in the flesh, he comes from the right people. He has the right family. He has the right upbringing. Look at verse, um, the next thing it says here. As to the law, I was a Pharisee. I kept the law so well that people looked at me and said, you're going to be the teacher. You're going to be the Pharisee. He goes on, as to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. I was so zealous for God that anyone, including Jesus, who would try to step up and say, God actually meant this, I would stomp them out. I'd say, nope, the rabbis are right, not Jesus. He was so confident in that that he actually persecuted people who followed Jesus. Look at the next thing it says. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. You couldn't come up to me and point out something to me in my life that was a a glaring problem because I kept the rules, right? At least as much as anyone could. He was blameless. Verse number seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, right? Whatever I think I was earning, I said, I'm gonna take all that stuff, my resume, all the stuff I've done, and instead of thinking that's something that gets me to God, I'm going to put it in this category over here that says, that's a danger for me. Because if I trust those things, that was, that's dangerous for me to trust those things. I count it as loss. Put it in the other column. For the sake of Christ. Look at verse 8. It says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. What he's saying is this. If you were to take everything you've ever done and put, put it in a bucket, so to speak, right? Now that's a weird analogy, but like all, all the things you've done for the church, all the things you've done for your family, all the good things you've ever said, hey, also all the bad things that you never did, right? Imagine you put all those things, write them on little post-it notes, right, whatever, and put it in a bucket, right? And then you have that bucket and you say, that's where my trust is. And that's what Saul did for a while in his life. He says, I gotta take all those things, give it now, exchange it, for a bucket, so to speak, that has one word on it, Christ. It's better to have Christ and what he's done than all the things that I've done. Because I trust those things for a while. I had to take that and give it away. Give it back to God. And then it says to ha- that I might gain Christ. Look at verse 9. It says, I need to be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's not what I need. I don't need to just be a little bit better. right? But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The danger for a lot of us with this text is we say, okay, great, I can't make it, so it doesn't matter what I do. That's not what Paul says. In fact, he says, you need righteousness so badly. You actually need a perfect life. That's what you need more than anything, but you failed already. We failed. So he says, don't trust yourself because your life, although you think you might be doing good things, it's, it's not making it with God but you do need righteousness. The only one that can provide righteousness for you is the the one who lived a righteous life, the perfectly righteous life, who never sinned, but also did everything good that he was supposed to do, did everything that he was supposed to do. So much so that he was a acceptable sacrifice for you, that he did what was right so that God could look at you, well, you've done what's wrong, and say, if you're in Christ, though, you're good. That's how good he was. If you're associated with him, if you're in Christ, you're good, even if you're a sinner, because he took his sin, put it on Jesus. You need righteousness that comes from God, that depends on faith. Um, That's the exchange that has to happen. And for many of you, you might believe that Jesus exists. You might even believe that Jesus saves sinners, but you're unwilling to let go of the good things that you've done. You're unwilling. For some of you, 
It's that maybe people think you're a Christian and you know deep down that you're not and you're unwilling to give that up and say, I'm willing to admit and tell everyone, hey, I was a fake. I was lying. I thought I was legit, but I wasn't. I deceived myself. I deceived you. I lied. I'm sorry. For some of you, that's the reason that you walk in and out of a camp like Revival or in and out of church and you're unwilling to be saved because you've got this reputation you've got to uphold. Same thing with Saul. He says it's not worth it. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ as your Savior is better than whatever tiny little reputation that you have as a good kid. What about the reputation you have with your parents, right? What if you, after this sermon, realize I'm not a Christian. I need to go tell my parents that I'm not saved, okay? Does that cost something? Yeah, it might, but what's better, right? The surpassing worth of knowing Christ. What about the sin that we love? Is that better? Well, no, because the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. It's better to be found in Christ than to enjoy a life of sin here. Because, great, enjoy your life of sin. It will leave you broken and battered. And then, judgment. It's, it's like the worst case scenario. Your Christian family, if your trust is in that, if you think, well, you know, my whole family is Christian. God wouldn't leave me out. Right? If, if your trust is in that, it's in the wrong place. If your attendance at church growing up, if your trust is in that, well, I've, I've, I've been to church, though. I've done those things. If that's where your trust is, it's in the wrong place because it's not good enough. If your trust is in going to camps and, and, and serving and, and helping out with Awana or Camp Compass or whatever thing you've done, and all your trust, if your trust is in that, you say, God would, has to accept me. Look at all that I've done for him. If that's where your trust is, point number one says it's not good enough. It's not. You need something better than that. God's standard is higher. You need a perfect life, but Jesus provides that for us. You have to trust him. If you think, well, my problem is not so much that um, I have such a good life to give up. It's that I have all this sin that I don't know if God could ever forgive me. A lot of people think that way. I want you to write this verse down. Luke chapter 18, verse 13. Luke 18, 13 and 14. Two verses there, actually. Luke 18, 13 and 14. Jesus told the story of a guy who made it his life goal. He was, a, he was a career criminal, basically. And then there's a guy who was a Pharisee, like Saul. And he says, these two people went to pray, and one of them got saved, and the other one went to hell. Which one do you think it is? And you think, well, it could, I mean, the Pharisee couldn't have gone to hell. He lived a good life. He was always doing good. He was teaching people the Bible. He couldn't have gone to hell. Yes, he did. Oh, and the criminal, the guy who lived an unrighteous life, He's the one that went to heaven. How is that possible? Well, let me, let me read what the text says. It says, the tax collector, this, this career criminal, was standing far off, and he would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. But he beat his breast. He hid himself. He was so ashamed, he couldn't even look up. He said, God, please be merciful to me, a sinner. Show me mercy. Don't give me what I deserve. Jesus says, I tell you, which if Jesus says, I tell you, you need to believe what he says. Here's what he says, and you should believe it. This man went down to his house justified, or in other words, saved, forgiven, completely covered for all of eternity. His past sins, his present sins, his future sins were completely atoned for. He could never get out of God's grace. He went down to his house justified rather than the other, the good guy, the church kid, the one who served, the one who did all that stuff. Why? Because it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The requirement for you to become a Christian is not that you would do a bunch of good things and earn a status. The requirement is that you would humble yourself and say, Jesus, I need you to cover my sin. 
Jesus, I need you to forgive me. And I trust that you're the only one that can do it. For by grace, you're saved. That's what that means. So through faith. That's the next part. What does it mean to trust? Well, I've been talking about that a lot, but um, salvation comes from God. That's what grace means. Can't do it. Faith means how do we access it? Well, we access it by trusting in Jesus. The question that I've been asking you this, this whole morning, and the one I want you to write down for point number two, is I want you to figure out if your faith is in yourself or in Christ. I want you to figure out if your faith is in yourself or in Christ. Now, that concept of faith being in something is kind of um, complicated if you're not thinking about it very long. Faith in something. I already gave the, the simple example that right now all of you have placed your faith squarely in the chair that you're sitting in. So much so that most of you aren't even like sitting up in your chair with your feet on the ground really hard, like hoping that it doesn't fall, right? Most of you trust your chair enough, right? You're going to get in the car this afternoon, and you're going to get in it, and you're probably not going to think twice about what happens, and you're going to get in it, and there's going to be this little fire that starts at the front, and it's like, ooh, the fire started, um, the engine started, unless you're in a Tesla, then, you know, buttons push or whatever. Um, point is, you're going to get in that car, you're going to go absurdly fast, like faster than humans are meant to go, and you're not going to think anything of it because your trust is in the car. And it's if not in the car, in the person driving the car. And if you're driving the car, your trust is that the, the steering wheel is going to work, that the gas tank's not going to fall out, that, that everything's going to be normal, that your brakes aren't going to like fail on you. You just trust it all the time. That's what I mean by trusting Christ. If your trust is in that you're a good person or all the things we talked about before, you're not saved, period. That's, that's the end of the story right now. But if your trust is squarely in Christ, regardless of your past or what you did in the past, if your trust is squarely in Christ, you are saved. Like, that's the difference, where your trust is. Some of us think that we can trust God for most of our salvation, but not all of it. It's like when you go to a restaurant and you split checks. Right? You ever been to a restaurant and it's like, is one person going to pay for it or is everyone going to pay for it, right? Um, on Friday, we, we were with friends. We went to Buffalo Wild Wings, of all places. I hadn't been there in a while. Um, and, you know, the check comes, and it's like, should you split the check, or should you do one check? And we ended up doing one check, right, and they paid for us. It was super nice. Um, but it was interesting, because you stand there at that moment, and you're like, well, we could split the check, and, like, you know, I could cover part of it, and you can cover part of it. We can kind of look at the check and say, well, what, what part am I going to cover, and what part are you going to cover? And see, a lot of us look at salvation that way, and we say, like, okay, like, who, who's covering what? Right? Does Jesus cover like all the stuff that I can't cover myself? Like maybe he covers 50%, and I'll just cover the other 50%. Right? That's wrong. Maybe you think, well, maybe like I'll cover like 2% or 5%, like a little bit, and he'll cover the other like 98% or the 95%. Here's the problem. That's not how this works. If you're saved, Jesus covered 100% of yours or 0%. That's his deal. All in or nothing. He's either going to pay for your sins, he's going to cover you, he's going to give you his righteousness, or you're going to reject him and say, nope, I'll pay. But the problem is, like, some of us think, oh, well, I got some things to offer God, I've got some money. That's what point number one was all about, right? Admit that whatever you have is not good enough for God. And some of you hear that and you think, well, yeah, like, let's say I owe, like, a $30 debt to Buffalo Wild Wings. I don't have $30, but maybe I have 20 maybe I have 10 maybe I have a dollar, maybe I have a penny. My point is... You have nothing. You have nothing to offer God. You have nothing, which is why if you get saved today, for example, if you trust in Christ for the first time today, you will be just as saved as the person 
who's been living for God for 50 years. You're just as equally saved. Will you have as much righteousness? Equal righteousness in the eyes of God. Why? Because you're both in Christ. You might have unequal amounts of sin that you've committed. Maybe you've done more. Maybe you've done less. But the righteousness that you need from Christ is delivered to everyone who's in Christ. Full righteousness. Paying for 100%. Love for you to write this verse down. Galatians chapter 2, verse 16. We just read this in the DBR. It says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified or declared right. Justified means saved. Right? That God says you're saved by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? Very clear. Right? And again, we could say it all day long. But if some of us act like that's the case for us, we're missing the mark. How do you know if your faith is in Christ or something else? Right? That's a good question for you to ask. Right? A lot of you think, well, I, I, I think I'm saved. I think my faith is in Christ. How do, how do I know? Right? Well, first thing you should do is, is stop and ask yourself the question. Right? If you were led into heaven, why should you be there? Why should you be there? And if you have a whole list of reasons, well, well I did this. I went to this church camp and I did all these things. If that's your reason, right? That's probably a bad sign, red flag. I'd say, hey, I don't think your trust is in the right place. But if your answer to that is, no, like the, I, I shouldn't be here. Nothing I've done has earned this. Really, I should go to hell. That's where I deserve to be, right? But Jesus died for me, and I'm, I'm sure of it. I'm sure that he's covered my sin. I trust him completely. If that's what you say, well, I think you're on the right track. Your trust is probably in the right place. And furthermore, God does something amazing to help us what he does is, if your faith goes in Christ, here's what he starts doing. He starts changing you. That's like a really comforting thing. He starts changing you. He starts molding you to be more like him. And part of the reason he does that is to show you and to show me, hey, is my faith real? Is my faith really in Christ? If, if God starts changing your life, you start wanting different things. You start doing different things. You start saying different words. You start hanging out with different crowds. Like, stuff in your life starts changing. That's a good sign. That, that's affirming. Here's a verse for you to write down. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. James 2, 14 to 19. Which is funny because if you know your Bible and you know Ephesians 2, you think, wait, James 2, isn't that the passage that like talks about works and how like works show like the, the, the realness or the fakeness of faith? That's exactly right. These two concepts go really well together to understand that we're saved by grace through faith, not by anything you do. But then it's like, if we want to see who's saved, who's really, who really gets it, James 2, he writes this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says, if someone says he has faith? Not if someone has faith, but if someone says he has faith. Someone's claiming that they trust God, but they don't have any works. Can that faith save them? The point is, he's saying there's two different kinds of faith. If you don't understand that in this passage, it's like that is the, the interpretive key to understanding James chapter 2. There are two different kinds of faith being described. If someone says they have faith, but that faith doesn't produce any good works, they don't start living for God, they just go right back to their sin. They love their sin. Right, then that faith that they're claiming to have, it's not a genuine faith in Christ. It's not the kind of saving faith. It's a fake faith, not a saving faith. Says, Can that faith save them? No, absolutely not. Right? They're, they're not saved, clearly. It says if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, right, you got a Christian who's sitting next to you who needs a lot of things and could depend on you and you could meet a need. But you say to him, 
go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Right? It's like if you have the opportunity to do good and, and you refuse to do it, well, does and what about your faith? Is your faith real? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? Describing two kinds of faith. Not saying you need to have faith in Christ and then do a bunch of good things and then God says you're saved. That's not how it works. It's you have a certain kind of faith after which God says you are saved and then what follows? Then good works follow. Living faith or dead faith. And that's, the que- that's really the question I'm meaning for you to ask. Is my faith a living faith or is it a dead faith? A lot of us claim, because we can look back at a time, we can look at a revival or a camp or a VBS experience and say, well, that's when I got saved. Well, if your faith is not living and active today, the Bible is trying to tell you, hey, well, that faith that you say you have, chances are it's dead faith. It wasn't really saving faith because your life would change. He goes on. This is still James chapter 2. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Basically saying, hey, if you want to see if my faith is real, I can't show you my heart. Right? I, can't, I can't open it up and say, well, look in here. Right? Clearly, I, I trust in Christ. You can't do that. But what can you do? Well, you can say, well, look what God did in me. Look at the works. He goes on. He says, verse 19, you believe that God is one? Like if you think, yeah, I believe in one God. You know, he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and that's what you ascend to? He says, well, great. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder. They're afraid. And you're not even afraid. What's the point? Uh, if your faith in God, if all that means is you believe that there's a God and you come to church sometimes and you have some Christian friends, if that's all that your faith in God is, um, that's very similar to demonic faith. Right? Demons have that because they believe in God. Right? See, so they know God exists more than you do. Right? They saw God before you did. Right? They know what God does even more than you do. Right? They know more about God than you. Right? So that's why it's not impressive for you to go to God and say, well, look, look, I studied a lot about you. It's not impressive to him, right? The demons have been studying God since the beginning. That doesn't mean they're saved. What's the difference? Well, the people who trust in Jesus, the people who are humble, who don't exalt themselves but humble themselves and say, I need you to save me, Jesus. The end of that passage, James 2.26 says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. You claim to have faith, but there's no works that back it up. Don't tell me that faith is alive. It's, it's not. And see, some of you know, like, that's, that's me. That's me. I don't want to admit it. I always, always fight that and think, no, 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 I'm trying to convince myself I'm a Christian. Some of you, you just know. It's like, I know that's me. Others of you are unsure. But if you know that's you, I want to talk to you for a second. Um, the Bible makes it very clear that God invites you to seek him at a time when he may be found. Don't take the chance and say, Oh, I'm not sure, so I'm just going to carry on with how my life has been. Don't do that. Isaiah 55 says, seek the Lord in a time where he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way. And let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts. And let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him. God is ready with open arms to embrace you, but you have to call on him. No one gets saved without calling on God. No one gets saved without that, that simple prayer to God to say, God, I need you to forgive me and save me. Right? It doesn't happen because your parents pray for you. It doesn't happen by proxy. One of the scarier passages in the Bible is Luke 13, verse 23. Someone came up to Jesus and asked him a question. Uh, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Like, are there going to be less people in heaven than I thought? And Jesus answered, he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. For I tell you, 
many will seek to enter it and not be able. Like there's going to come a time when people say, well, I want to be saved, I want to be saved, I want to, and, and the door shut. It says once there was a master of a house, and he rose and he shut the door. And if you began to stand outside and to knock at that door saying, Lord, open to us, then will, then will he answer you, I don't know where you've come from. Right? There's a day when this opportunity shuts. And some of you have been playing with fire and tempting fate, so to speak. It's not really that you're tempting fate. It's that you're um, pushing back against God. Don't push back on God. Just submit to him. Everyone's going to submit in a universal sense, but not everyone's going to be submitting to him in a right relationship. God will be found today. None of you are like beyond God's grace right now. Nobody is. Seek him by the time he may be found. Today he, he, he'll be found. You call on him, he makes a promise in scripture. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. You call on him and you trust with your whole heart, you're saved. Right? Not because you did something, not because you called on him, but because he saved you. Right? You, you don't claim after you've been saved from like some wreckage that I got saved because I you know, had life alert. I called 911. It's like, well, no, because life alert came and got you. Right? You know the thing that the old people have on their necklace and they, they hit the button if they fall down, right? Um, it's like, well, who's doing the saving, right? Is it you? Oh, yeah, congratulate. You were on the ground and you hit life alert, but oh, that's awesome. Did you say? No, you didn't save yourself. All the credit, right, goes to the person who saves you because they saved you. You didn't save yourself. But you have to call. You have to ask. That's how salvation works, verses 8 and 9. But look at verse 10 back in our passage in Ephesians 2. Um, what happens when you're saved? He says, well, just know this. God says something very important about you. And while the topic of identity and who you are and who you want to be is one of the most relevant topics, it always has been. That's what the book of Ephesians is about. Who are you? Um, just know this, if you're a Christian, this passage should tell you who you are just about as well as any passage in the entire Bible. This is who you are right here, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Why do you exist? Why do I exist? What's our purpose? Well, because God made and designed you specifically and uniquely to bring him glory in specific and unique ways. In ways that I'm not going to in ways that the person sitting next to you is not. He's made you, he's given you the relationships and the family and whatever talents and gifts he's given you so that you're going to bring him glory. That's the purpose. You're his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. When you got saved, you were created for good works. And it's not just you, it's also the good works. And that is probably the most mind-blowing thing, right? That God has works that he's already prepared for you to do, that your role is, I'm going to walk in those. I'm going to do those. Every time I find them, I'm going to do them. Whatever good work God has for me, I'm willing to do. I'm willing to do anything, at any place, at any time for him. Point number three is this. I'd love for you to write this down. Discover and do God's pre-planned good works. Discover, figure out what they are, right? And then do God's pre-planned good works. There are things that God has planned from eternity past for you to do today. Wow. Think about that for two seconds. There's conversations that he wants you to have today that in eternity past, he orchestrated the entire universe and how everything would run just so that you could have that conversation with that person. Just so that you could encourage that person. Like, not just so, but it all leads to that. Like, that is so cool. That your life has been planned by God. That the day that you die is written in God's book. You don't have to be freaked out and scared. That what if I die when I'm 25? What if I die when I'm 80? I'm scared. You don't have to be scared. Because God has these pre-planned good works for us to do. But what our job is, we have to walk in them. Do you notice, if you're looking at that passage, that 
that ends with walking in them at the end of verse 10. Do you remember the last time it said people were walking in things? Look up at verse 2. Well, verse 1, I'll just read it. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What was these non-Christians, what was their life all about? Well, just doing the sinful things that they wanted to do. That was their pattern of life. They were walking in those. Now, at the end of this passage, he says, God has good works, and what are you supposed to do? Walk in them, right? It's up to you. It's like, um, you know, imagine like if you were a power drill. It's kind of a weird example. But imagine you were some, you know, power drill or some saw that's really powerful, right? And you're specially designed for a purpose. And it's like you've got a list of things that your owner has for you to do that you don't know what they are yet. But each day, he picks you up as an instrument and he's going to use you to do whatever is on his list. That's kind of the same idea. It's like God has a list and he has a different list for each one of you of stuff that he's going to have you do and you're going to be used by him to do. And you're not going to do it for yourself, you're going to do it for him. So every day, what are you supposed to do? It's like you're supposed to make yourself available to God again and say, God, I'm ready to do whatever you want me to do. What, what am I doing today? What should I do today? Right. Kind of an odd thought, but that's exactly what the Bible tells us to do all the time. Right? You might not have thought about it that way, but that's what Romans 12 Verse 2 talks about, Romans 12, 2, if, if you listen, by the way, to the sermon this morning from Pastor Mike in main service, if you didn't listen to that, you should. That basically is all about point number three, right? What does God want me to do? There's tons of things that God wants you to do. But Romans 12, 2 says, don't be conformed to the world because your natural default setting will be, you're going to pick up your phone, you're going to go on Instagram, you're going to go on Be Real, you're going to go on whatever you go on, and like, you're just going to, your head's just going to get filled with that, right? You're going to drive in your car and Spotify is going to go in your ears, right? And you're just everything's going to hit you and you're going to be with friends and everything's going to conform you. He says, don't, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be fit into its mold, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You need time every day, every day for your mind to be transformed. If you don't have your mind transformed every day, you will be conformed to the world. Some of you wonder why you can't shake certain sins. Well, it's probably because your mind's not being renewed by God's word. You start thinking, why is this temptation so strong? Why am I going after these things so hard? I don't like them. Maybe some of you are Christians, and it's like, man, there's sin that I can't get rid of. There's anxiety. There's gossip. There's lust. I want to get rid of it. Why am I not getting rid of it? Well, if I'm not transforming my mind by God's word, you wouldn't expect it to go away. You would expect it to come and be stronger in your life. But it says, renew your mind, that by testing, you may discern what the will of the Lord is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's another way to put it. Psalm 119, verse 37. Psalm 119, 37 says, Turn my eyes, God, from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Okay. That's going to take you getting up in the morning, literally in the morning, right, filling your mind with truth every day, and then getting ready to say, okay, God, what do you want me to do today? And guess what? He's not going to come and tell you, all right, I got six things for you to do. You're going to do this, this, and this. Although that is kind of how it works sometimes. You go live your day, and I, I had one of these days recently, it was like, I had all these plans written down, and it was like, oh, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, and I, I made even a little, nice little list. I'm like, I'm going to do work on, you know, homework for, for seminary, I'm going to do stuff for True North, I'm going to do stuff for Alliance, today's going to be great, right? And then I get a phone call that says like, hey, I'm sick, can you come teach a class? And then it's like, okay, I guess I'm doing that now, right? So then I, you know, changed my plans, and now, now I'm doing something else. Right? And some days it's like very clear right, what God wants you to do. Because someone literally tells you, hey, I need you to do this. And then you say, okay, I'm ready to do them. Right? But you need to get ready to do whatever good works God has for you. Ephesians 5 puts it like this. You're supposed to walk in light as children of light and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. 
Right? Each day, try to figure out, what would I do today that's most pleasing to God? I know I don't really have time, but I want to give you a, a quick little list um, of things. And this morning sermon, if you heard it, is helpful for this. Go listen to Pastor Mike's sermon because it will really help you understand what God wants you to do as a Christian. Um, but there are four things, quickly, that I know God wants you to do as a high school student if you're a Christian. Four quick little things, and there's a ton more, but four. Um, first one, that the Bible makes very clear, Ephesians 6, 1, that you're supposed to honor and obey your parents, right? I know that's what God wants you to do. And if you think, well, I don't know if I should honor and obey them, like, I think I know better than them. Well, I can say, well, the Bible says you're supposed to honor and obey them, so there you go. Honor and obey them. Very clear. Are they telling you to sin? Probably not, right? Oh, you don't like what they tell you to do. You don't, maybe you don't like the rules they give you, but they're not telling you to sin, right? Honor and obey. Say yes, sir, yes, ma'am. Even giving honor, right? Do you honor your, your mom, right? You show her honor. Show your dad honor. You roll your eyes, right? See, here's what I know God has for you today that you would honor your parents. That means listening to them, right? It sounds like very, very little kid thing, but doing what they say the first time they ask, right? I feel like, you know, talking to Sparks here, right? You know, you've, you've probably told kids this before, but like, that's honoring and obeying, right? You're not above that. By the way, you know that in the book of Exodus, who was told to honor their father and mother? Was that kids? Nope, it was adults. Adults were supposed to honor their father and mother. Kids, you're supposed to obey. That's an even bigger thing. Right? And as long as you're not an adult who's out of the house, which all of you are still living at home, right, either with your parents or your grandparents, your job is to obey. And then when you move out, guess what your job will be to do? Honor for the rest of your life, even if it's hard. Second thing, I know God wants you today to put other people first. Philippians 2, 3 to 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others, right? That's what God wants you to do. So today, when it's my preference or their preference, guess what? What good work does God have for you to do? Well, put their preference before mine. Right? Third thing, um, practically serving other people, right? Meeting people's needs. First John 3, 18. That's the first verse I think of. It says, little children, let us not love in word or talk only, but in indeed and in truth, right? Like actually helping like, not actually just saying, oh, yeah, I hope you have a good day. I hope that goes well for you. But saying, hey, what can I do to help you? And then actually meeting the need. Fourth thing, this might be the simplest, but it can be very hard. It's a hard one for me to do. Um, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 says this, but take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil and unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Basically saying, in every group of people, there's people who look like they know God, but they actually have an evil and unbelieving heart. They actually don't trust in God. And if they're not kept in, they'll walk away. So then it says, this is verse 13, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The fourth thing is encouraging and exhorting other people, other Christians, saying, hey, do the right thing. Hey, how can I encourage you to do the right thing? How can I text you to read your Bible? How can I do this? Look, these are very simple things. And you might say, okay, yeah, read your Bible, pray. Oh yeah, I've heard the encourage people. The reason I'm giving very basic ones is because I know all of those apply to every last one of you if you're a Christian. So don't say, I don't know what God's will for me is today. Just do what God has told us to do. Start there, and the rest will be clear. I told you there's a guy in Acts 16 who asked the question, what can I do to be saved? Well, do you know there's another guy who asked that same question? He asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And the problem with that guy is he didn't get saved. 
because Jesus talked to the rich young ruler, and what he told him was, hey, yeah, um, you want to follow me? Here's the things I want you to do. Give up your life, your ambitions, follow me. And he says he didn't do it. He went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. What happened next, the disciples turned to Jesus and said, wow, if that guy can't get saved, I mean, he's a good guy. Right? How can anyone be saved? Jesus says, yeah, with man, it's impossible. But with God, it's not impossible. All things are possible. Anyone can be saved by God's power. They have to repent and turn. I hope that today this text makes salvation more clear to you than it's ever been and how to be saved. But I want to bring that first question back home to you. That question, what should I do to be saved? You need to ask that for yourself. You need to be saved yourself. Let's pray real quick, then we'll head out. God, please make this increasingly clear to us. I pray that we would continue to understand the truth from you. Pray that we would not walk away from the truth. I know so, so many of us are convicted of sin right now, but we've pushed you away for a long time. I pray for your own glory and for your goodness that you would save to bring yourself more glory. You know that you look good to the world and to everyone else when you do miraculous things like taking a dead sinner and making him alive. Pray that you would do that in this group. God, I plead with you, please do it out of your compassion and your steadfast love. And even for your own sake, God, please save these souls. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.